0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and as always, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today, we're gonna be talking about how to age like a FOMO Sapiens. Now, what the heck does that mean? What I mean is, FOMO Sapiens, you know, we think about things, we're thoughtful, we're mindful, we make a plan, we choose the path of most impact. And so as you get older, guess what? You can't escape aging. I remember I have these, you know, it's like funny when somebody picks on somebody because they're, they're like, oh, you we were, we were so much older. I'm like, wait 10 years, you're going to be older than that person. So, you know, we all do it. Nobody likes to talk about it, but there's this whole kind of world now of longevity. I mean, the amount of people I know who are starting companies in the longevity space, they're cool. By the way, if they actually do something, I'm down. If they don't, if it's just smoke and mirrors, not so good, but it is a huge space. And the reality is that, yeah, you can take a pill, you can get a treatment, you can do all this stuff, but there are so many behaviors that you need to think about because a lot of this also is about the mental aspect. You can't just take a bunch of pills to fix the mental aspect of this. You need to change mindset. And to talk about that is a very special guest, a returnee to FOMO Sapiens, the great Stephen Kotler. Now, Stephen, he is a New York Times bestselling author, an award winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's also one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He is the author of 11 bestsellers, yikes, including The Art of the Impossible, which we talked about on this very show when it came out. Other books include The Feature is Faster then you think Needling Fire, The Rise of Superman, and many, many others. He's been published into more than 50 languages. His writing and his ideas have appeared in every magazine or newspaper you could ever imagine. Seriously, the list that I have in front of me is extensive. Just pick one of your favorites and throw it in there because he's in all of them. And Steven, along with his wife, who's the author, Joy Nicholson, is the co-founder of the Buddy Sue Hospice Home for Old Dogs, which is a canine elder care facility. That's amazing. Now, Stephen's new book is called Nar Country. And when I saw that name, I got the book and I thought, well, what the heck does that mean? But I know Nar is a skiing thing, right? But still, I didn't know what it was. And then I read the book. And it's all about his experience of learning how to park ski, which is like freestyle skiing, in his 50s. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing you usually pick up in your 50s, but he does it and he uses that as a lens to explain how aging can be very different than the ways we think about it. You can be more powerful that there's all these things you can unlock as you get older, but you can't just kind of wait for them to happen. You got to be you got to be making the conditions for them to emerge. Right. And so that's what he talks about through the lens of this 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 expedition, I guess, to learn park skiing, which I will never do, but. I'll find some other way to get the same thing. So that's what we're going to talk about. And what you're going to learn is number one, why the way we think about aging is incorrect. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not about steady decline or managing decline. No, siri, Bob. It can be so much more. See how I just, I just, now I sound old when I say no, siri, Bob, but it's true. Number two, how Stephen used himself as a laboratory to figure all this out and what he learned. And finally, what are the practical tips? So like, you know, it's really nice to talk about this stuff, but I wanted to give you some things you can use straight away in your own life. And so you will get the tips, the tricks, the things you can use in your own life to start putting these things into practice. All right, my small ass this week, you know, talking about getting older, what's one way to not get older? Be on TikTok, which I am now. I think you might've heard a rumor. So if you go check out Patrick J. McGinnis on Instagram or TikTok, you will see wonderfully clipped clips of our videos of the show. I've been recording videos. You've not seen them. I didn't know what the heck to do with them. And then one day it came to me, put them on the socials. And so there they are. And my partner in doing this is a wonderful company called Pod Machine. You're gonna meet the founder later this season, but Pod Machine is a company that does this. They can do it for you. In fact, they help podcasters to do all kinds of stuff, edit your shows, do your videos, splice them, put them on socials, all that kind of stuff, and at very affordable prices. Go check out their website. It's PodMachine. If you go to podmachine.com slash FOMO, we have a special offer for you. Go check it out. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I start every interview with the same question, and the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today?
1: I'll tell you what the decision was, and, and and then we can talk about all the different ways it, it led to today. Um, the decision was twenty years ago, uh, when my wife, that my girlfriend at the time uh, and I decided to do hospice care work for dogs as kind of a full-time venture, among the many other things that I, I was doing. But when we set up what was uh, our original hospice care sanctuary ranch of Chihuahua, uh, which we ran for about 16 years in New Mexico, and, and that's since morphed into a, a second hospice care facility uh, in Nevada where we are now. Um, that was the decision, and it changed a lot of stuff, but most relevant to, I think, what we're gonna talk about today, my um, recent work has been around peak performance aging, and it was it was doing hospice care work for dogs, we developed a healing methodology sort of on our own using what I knew about flow science and evolutionary psychology, what my wife knew about nutrition, some vet advice and that sort of thing. But our healing methodology, we would get dogs, our specialty, when we did this, this is a long answer and I apologize, our specialty was like the worst of the worst. We, If you're a ch- small chihuahua with three legs, one eye, cancer, heart disease and flatulence, like you are our dog, that's what we specialized in. And the dogs would co- go to the vet first, of course, before they came into the rescue. And the vets would say, don't get too attached. This animal's really sick. Month, maybe two before, right? The goal here is a really good death. And we would bring them into our home and the healing protocol would work so well, we'd get three to four to five more years of life out of this, for, for these animals. And over the time we were in Mexico, especially 700 animals passed through our facility and 5,000 dogs passed through our outreach programs. So this is a huge sample size. And it was sort of across the board, and we were seeing like, we were making essentially lifestyle interventions and getting in human years, like an extra 20 years. And that was sort of what, there were a lot of places my current work started for me, but that was one of them when I was looking at that, I was going, well, what's going on? Is this possible for humans? And it turns out not only is it possible at the same time I was noticing this stuff in dogs, other people were noticing the same kinds of things in humans. So it was my timing was fortuitous with this work. Well, you are one of the illustrious two-time guests for FOMO Sapiens,
0: and based on the pace with which you are releasing books, I expect that we'll have you back again and again and again. So lucky us. And today you're going to talk about your new book, and it is called, I have it right here in my hand, nar Country. Growing Old, Staying Rad, and you embarked on this really fascinating project and that you talk about in the book, which is teaching yourself how to park ski at the age of 53, which for a bunch of different reasons, which are biological in nature, is considered nearly impossible for anyone over the age of 35. So before we get into some of the learnings about peak performance aging, talk about like what, how did this all come about, this, this audacious idea, and also explain what park skiing is for those who don't know.
1: The short version of part A is I the last time I talked to Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is the godfather of flow psychology um, and was a huge mm-hmm. influence on, on my work. He passed away during COVID, but our last conversation was in and around peak performance aging. And he had basically said, however you're getting the most flow in your life, as you get into the second half of your life. The desire for flow never goes away, but have a backup plan, have lots of different access points for flow. He found himself in the latter, his latter years where some of his access points really closed closed down. And so he was like, it was a very personal conversation, like one flow junkie to another, hey, have a backup plan. And um, my for a bunch of different reasons that we can sort of get to as we go along, I decided, I well, my backup plan was gonna involve teaching myself how to park ski, which as you pointed out, is is considered biologically impossible for really anybody over the age of 40. But because of my work with dogs, I had started looking at a bunch of different related fields to like successful aging and and, and things, but they were embodied cognition, flow science, things that were on the on the tangents. But I started to realize that theoretically, if all the things I was reading was were correct it should really be possible for an old dog to lo- learn new tricks using this very kind of precise uh format that we built we built based on all these ideas now mo- these ideas were true in the lab nobody would really put them to the test you know in the w- real world so i you know i designed a Oh, well, i basically made a list of 20 tricks that would cover going zero i have no abilities whatsoever the parks gear i could ski i was good but i'd never been in a terrain park knew no tricks couldn't do anything And as you pointed, I was 53 years old. You know, the odds were against me. And I figured if it takes me five years to learn all these tricks, cool, right? I've accomplished my goal. Great. And I went, I learned most of the tricks in less than a season. And I went so shockingly fast I, like it was, it, it was freaky. It didn't even make sense to me. I've never progressed at anything as fast, as quickly as I did this. I'm not a natural born athlete. I'm not a gifted. That I've done this a long, skied a long time, so I got good over time. But I'm, so I was really shocked by it. My ski partner, Ryan Wicks, who is a former professional sponsored athlete, but had gotten injured, taken almost a decade off, had a family, you know, really hadn't park skied. Was you? He started using my same protocol. And he started making crazy progress, really crazy progress. And by the end of it, we were like, okay, this is this is sort of real. We're really looking at something here, but all we had was sort of the smallest pilot study in the history of the universe, right? Um, it was cool that it was tantalizing, but so this past year we ran a, a second study with 17 older adults, ages 30 to 68. And we took the same ideas from these same sort of fields, blended them together. And in four sessions on the mountain, taught them how to park ski as well. And they made crazy progress. And then we took we removed the park skiing and the park snowboarding and just turned it into a training. And we've run over 500 people through the training right now to see if the ideas work once you pull them out of action sports, right? Because not everybody's gonna gonna go for action sports in the, in the second half of their life. And we've had massive success there. So the the story, the experiments, is what's told actually in in our country, right, in the in the book. Um, but the the bigger picture is also really really cool.
0: FOMO. Tudo bem meus queridos Homo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese and as you know I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. 1 in 5 Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel. The science-backed language learning app that actually works. only for our listeners at babble.com slash fomo. Get up to sixty percent off at babbel.com slash fomo. That's spelled b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash fomo. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. That's really cool. And it's it's a cool book. It's a different kind of book because it's like a diary in a sense. You you know take us through this experience. And as I was I was reading it so one it's even I've been telling all my friends I grew up skiing I'm from Maine you know it was kind of a thing I did on the weekends never I was never like I'm not like a daredevil skier but like I'm a competent skier and the last couple of years I haven't been able to ski for different reasons not a priority and I feel like I every time I meet a friend I haven't seen in a while they've succumbed to like some terrible skiing injury like one guy had like part of his like clavicle sticking out it was crazy and so as I was reading your book I was like you know this is interesting because I started to perceive this as like a risky thing to do. And it is, you know, you can hurt yourself. And in the book, you know, you do have to sort of fight against injury. But one of the things that kind of comes out in this, and I really wanna hit on is like, aging is a mental event as much as it is a physical process. And a shift in mindset can actually, you you say it can add seven years to our lives. So there's like a science around how mindset shifts affect our
1: aging. Talk about that science and what you learned. Yeah, there's a, there's a physical side to this as well, uh, but there's there's definitely a mental side. And for anything I'm about to say to make sense, we just got to start with, there's a traditional theory of aging that was dominant in the 20th century. It actually dates back to Freud, but a ton of people contributed to it in the 20th century. And I, I think of it as the long, slow route theory. It's the idea that like all of our physical and mental skills fall off a cliff and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And it turns out that's really not true at all. And subcategory, that is where you hit in. This is a great place to start the conversation is aging is not a, just a physical event. In fact, it's as much if not more of a mental event than a physical event. And starting back in the 1970s, a woman named Ellen Langer was at Harvard. She started to do the initial. She's often talked about as like the godmother of successful aging, the godmother of peak performance aging, the godmother of positive psychology, on and on and on and on. I, I like to think about Ellen Langer if you're of my generation and you grew up oh, and you were a kid and you heard a song on the radio and you didn't know who it was it was always the Eagles like it, <laughs> like if you didn't know who it was it was probably going to be amazing. the Eagles that was just like the safe bet because who knows but I sort of feel like Ellen Langer is the Eagles of psychology if you've heard of a crazy weird experiment but you don't know who did it chances are it's Ellen Langer but she figured out way, way, way back in the 70s and the early 80s that mindset has a huge impact on health and longevity. And since that early work, a lot of very long studies have proven this. And the, the most famous one is the Ohio Longitudinal Study of Aging and Retirement. It started in 1975. It ran to 1995. So it's a 20-year study, thousands of subjects. And they were the first to prove what is now very well established in the fact that you mentioned that a positive mind shift set towards aging. So this is sort of like a growth mindset toward the second half of your life. I believe the second half of my life is is filled with thrilling possibilities, basically. Um, Can produce an extra seven and a half years of healthy longevity. That's remarkable. Um, that means, like, if you're thinking about do I quit smoking or do I change my mindset? Do I lose weight or do I change your mind? No, you shift your mindset, you'll get like way more years out of both. Um, so, mindset is usually important, but I think there's a second half to this. Because um, if you just shift your mindset, uh, if the long slow rot theory is still true, all you've done is just changed your mind. Doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not. Authentic. What? What? The other thing that you have to know, I think, uh, on top of this is the difference between older ideas about aging and contemporary ideas of aging is that one thing, one major thing changed. Used to be, we thought the mental and physical skills declined over time. There's nothing we can do to stop the slide. These skills do decline over time. There is an aging process, and the, and it, you know some skills start to fall off in our twenties, some in our thirties, forties, fifties, and that is real. But it turns out all of these skills are use it or lose it skills. So if we never stop using and training these skills, um, we can hang on to them and even advance them far later in life than possible. Now, there's caveats there, like there's reasons why your friends were probably getting hurt going back to skiing in the 50s. And We can talk about what that is and, and how, you, how you work around that. But the truth of the matter is, and, and the, the cool thing about uh, what I just said is, there's data showing, you, if you're in your 80s and you start making some of these interventions, they will actually, they'll work really late in life, right? The data shows that peak performance aging, we could really thrive, sort of rock till we drop, but it starts young. There's stuff you want to do in your 20s if you can, in your 30s and your 40s, definitely in your 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, and um, really important. So it, it's sort of, we, we can really thrive in the second half of our life, but you have to, you're really training for it in a sense. I'd love to get into that,
0: actually. I think you just teed up something that's really, really relevant, which is, you know, we've had over the last couple of years, we've all been curbing in our behaviors in a lot of ways. Our freedom of movement and access in some ways has been has been affected. Like, say you, you're an athlete and you go to the gym. while well, the gym was closed for a long time and, you know, these kinds of things. And I think there's also been a risk mitigation mindset that has been embraced by people. Like, we spent so much of our time trying not to get covid That in in a lot of ways, like you're you're so focused on risk mitigation that you're not focused on expansive mindset, positive psychology, you know, building new skills, a lot of the things that would we would have had otherwise. So it's all really important now to to make make the effort to like regain the time we have lost. So when we think about some of those physical and mental sort of things that you need to do for peak performance aging that you started to talk about in your twenties, 30s, 40s, 50s, like what are some of those things that we need to embrace now?
1: Okay, let's uh, let's just start on the physical side, and then we'll move to the mental side. Because the physical side is pretty, uh, we, we we can get there pretty quickly. What is defined as functional fitness is strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. Those are the five categories. And what the data shows is, for peak performance, aging, you have to regularly train all five. And we, we have very specific numbers on it. Like if you want peak performance aging, you need 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity a week. You need two, a minimum of two strength sessions a week, a minimum of two balance training sessions a week. Um, probably some flexibility, some stretching on on, on either end of it, um, unless you've got, got a different system in place for that. And then you have to focus on on certain things i always say like if you can start if you haven't trained for a while you want to start working you want to start with somebody who actually can watch you walk figure out what's wrong with your body and work around that because one of the problems one of the reasons your friends probably got hurt is this As we age, we have two kinds of muscles. We have prime movers and stabilizers. Prime movers are the big ones, the quads, the glutes, and the stabilizers are your hip flexors, your rotator cuffs. And what happens is as we get injured, if we injure ourselves at all, as the body is healing, prime movers take over and the stabilizers do less work. And over time, That also happens naturally. The prime movers take over, and this is just like the body trying to save energy and be efficient. But what happens is when you suddenly add in new movement patterns that you haven't done in a little while and you haven't properly trained up your stabilizers, they go out, your prime movers can't compensate and you, you end up having injury problems and, and, and things along those lines. So, there's there's a lot of there's sort of specifics in there and there's, there's stuff to think about, but the physical stuff is... And let me just give one example because this is my favorite out of all of them because this was the one um, I heard so much about it growing up, which was VO2 max, which is your upper aerobic threshold, right? top sprinting speed and that sort of stuff. And it it starts falling off in your 20s and your 30s, and by your 50s, it goes off a cliff, and there's nothing we can do. And this was for years and years and years, and you would would have arguments with people where you'd be like, well, we've learned this about strength, or we've learned this about balance, and people would be like, well, what about VO2 max? And it was like the thing that people always pointed to. And it turns out uh, there's a ton of recent data where they were looking at the VO2 max of healthy octogenarian triathletes. Um, And they found that their VO2 max was that of a healthy 35-year-old male. So, they also found that those folks were training VO2 max by like regular burst of of high-intensity training from their 50s on. So, that's what I mean. Some of this stuff starts young, but you can like, you know, an 85-year-old man with the bo2 max of somebody 50 years younger than him is shocking but there's a lot of data to show that's possible so that's the really cool stuff now let's talk about the psychological side this is more on the mindset side um and here the data is really it's cool and it's it's counterintuitive is is also what i actually like what i found really surprising is so Let me start with the really good news and then let's talk about what's tricky about the really good news. The really good news is the old idea was, hey, our brains decline. We're going to get forgetful. Memory loss is inevitable. Cognitive decline is inevitable. In fact, loneliness and depression are built into the second half of our lives. All these were standard thinking and none of them are true, but there's a big caveat here. But first, let's start with the good news. This is, the original research was done by Gene Cohn, often called the godfather of peak performance aging with Ellen Langer, he's the sort of her counterpart. And uh, he was a, originally trained as a geriatric psychiatrist and sort of the founded the first, the National Institute uh, for Aging. Um, and that was all his sort of creation. He ran two of the longest and largest studies on, on aging anybody's ever run and he discovered that rather than the fact that cognitive skills fall off a cliff, in fact, something radically startling happens. In our 40s and 50s, there are genetic changes, certain genes that only activate by experience start coming on, and there are actual changes in how the brain processes information. The two hemispheres start to work together like never before, and the brain starts to realize there's undercolonized real estate. Um, so that that has been right that has been untouched over like 40 or 50 years, and so the brain starts colonizing it to use it for, for skills that you need. So, turns out in our 50s, because of these changes, we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence and really cool level like abstract reasoning, new levels of problem solving, stuff that we had never had access to before whole new levels of creativity open up and this is not just normal for creativity. It's divergent thinking outside the box, the hardest aspect of creativity to train and what's like most important in a business in business today. Like, you know, we want outside the box thinking cause the rate of change is so fast and we have to keep pace. And this is exactly what comes online in our fifties
0: FOMO FOMO. All right. I want to talk a little bit about though, just, you know, as you age, and we've talked about this before on the show, like, you know, your place in the world changes and it can be disorienting. And this isn't just at 50 or 60. It can be at any age of life. But how does it work? How do you navigate sort of figuring out what is your place in this world and how does this play into some of the, the ways that you can think about successfully aging and, and having positive attributes as you've talked about?
1: You got to know who you are in the world. This crisis usually shows up around age 12. And uh, Eric Erickson used to think that it got resolved by the time we were 18 and maybe it once did, but no longer. And it's now like around 30. And you have to sort of have figured that out. Otherwise, you have difficulty afterwards. Why? Because around 40, you have to solve for what economists call match fit or match quality. It's, there's a match between who I am, my strengths, my values, and what I'm doing with the bulk of my time right? What I do in the world. Um, and obviously if you haven't solved identity, if you don't know who you are, you can't solve match fit. Cause like, there's no way to do that. And then by 50, um, and this is especially crucial. If you want to unlock the wisdom and the empathy that comes on in your fifties, you have to, uh, forgive those who have done you harm and forgive yourself. Uh, that's really those psychological changes. They sort of start to unlock uh, these changes. And then in your fifties to really unlock these super hours have to engage in creative activities it's creative thinking that actually really sort of bursts a lot of these changes and you'll get some of the benefits without it but creativity is how you really unlock it and then once that stuff is unlocked you have to do two things to hold on to it and you touched on one earlier which is why i, I was sort of wanted to get to here um one you have to preserve physical functionality right all these hours don't if you're not training up the five categories of functional fitness we talked about doesn't matter, right? Like you're gonna run into those problems. And finally, the last thing you have to do to really hold onto these superpowers is you have to train down risk aversion and train up your risk tolerance. And it a lot of it has to do with how the brain, when you're risk phobic, right? Um, there's a lot of fear in the system, a lot of norepinephrine, a lot of cortisol, and those things block creativity empathy, wisdom, and certain aspects of intelligence, all the superpowers that you gain access to. If you can't, and we know risk aversion goes up with age, not all the categories, actually social risk. By the time we get to our fifties, we don't give a fuck what Amy thinks. And we're happy to like walk up. Hi, I'm Steven. You know what I mean? Like that's gone. And, uh, Financial uh, risk is, is both ways. If you work with money, if you work in the markets, that sort of thing, and you invest regularly, uh, finan- your f- financial risk will actually stay, you know, healthy. But if you're saving for retirement, you don't really work with money a lot, and you're a little more fearful that'll that'll drop. But the other categories tend to tend to drop, so you need to be training them, and it's super key uh, in weird ways, like ways you wouldn't expect. I'll give you an example. One of the ways that's really important if you want to train up risk tolerance is you want to remain open to experiences. You want to embrace novelty and unpredictability and change and those sorts of things. And they looked fairly recently at all the big five personality traits, openness to experience is one of them, and their correlation to peak performance, aging, and mortality and things like that. And they found all the categories sort of impact quality a second half of your life. Only openness Mm -hmm. to experience correlates to mortality, meaning you can watch in, in psychological profiling, you'll see but a year before people die, there's a sharp decline in their openness to experience. So openness to experience literally correlates to mortality within a year um, if there's a sharp drop. So um, no, I don't think anybody quite knows why that is yet, um, but it's been found a number of times. So the findings holding up, I don't think anybody understands why that is happening, but if you want to talk about the importance of sort of training up risk at lo- for longevity, there there you have it.
0: Yeah. Nobody ever did anything truly great by just being afraid. And that's the thing that I see that, you know, you see when you talk to older people and they are, um, they're fearful, you think, well, I'm never going to be like that. Right. But the reality is that, as you mentioned, like there is, it's not, it's not inevitable that you will be, but you
1: have to work at it to not be. Let me, yeah. Let me tell you a funny mindset story. So this is one of the things that started to happen to me. Prior to working on the book, but it, like, it was some of this stuff, a lot of things came together into the book, right? Like, and one of them was I was living in New Mexico and I was a skier and I was skiing at a number of different places. I would ski at the Santa Fe ski area most of the time. Sometimes I would ski in Taos and sometimes I would come to my old home in in Olympic Valley and ski at, at Palisades Tahoe. What used to be Squaw Valley was now Palisades Tahoe. Um, and it was really weird. I'd go to the Santa Fe ski area. I'd ski with the same groups of people, or the same age groups of people, right? Everywhere. And what was funny about this, nobody can see how old you are in a chair at the front. You got a helmet on, you got goggles on, they can't see your age. And I'd be at the Santa Fe ski area, which services, like it's above Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe is sort of a retirement community. And, the folks on that mountain have sort of a retirement mindset and I would be on the chairlifts and I would say things like, hey, have you checked out the cliff over there, or the bumps over there, or the chute over there? And guys, I would get geezer. They'd look at me and be like, I'm too old for that shit. And I'd be looking at somebody who was like 20 years younger than me, you know, like saying that to me, like 35 year olds. And I'd be like, what is going on? This is so weird um, these guys are really young to be saying these things. And then I would go to Taos. Now Taos is this sort of rowdy outdoor athlete community. People aren't action sport athletes. They're outdoor athletes. And to ski Taos properly, especially back in the day, they put, since put in a couple chairs. you had to do a ton of hiking. So I'd go there, same age group of people, like, you know, thirties to sixties that I would be skiing with. And, but they're all, they all think they're outdoor athletes. So I'd go to Taos and I'd be, I'd be with guys who were in their 60s or later 70s, and they would hike me into the ground. They would hike me to death. And their mindset was like outdoor athletes. But if you'd be like, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to go to the train park, they were like, oh no, I'm too old for that shit. And then I'd go to Squaw Valley, where everybody's an action sport athlete, and I'd be running around with posses of like pros or former pros. And invariably, like the first and leaving the charge was my buddy Tom Day, who's in his late 60s. And he's the guy out front. And there's Olympians in the pack and things like that. And you talk about the terrain park with that group. They're like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's take a lap through the terrain park because they're all action sport athletes. And I realized that the only difference between these groups, there's no real difference in like, Ski ability or anything else like that—it's their mindset. One group thinks of themselves as retirees and they act like retirees. One group thinks of themselves as outdoor athletes and they act like outdoor athletes. And one group thinks of themselves as action sport athletes and you know they act like action sport athletes. And it's really—it st- was a really strange dichotomy. It was one of the things I was looking at over and over and over again, like on a daily basis, for years, sort of going, what is going on here? This is wild. All right,
0: everybody. The book is Nar Country: Growing Old. Staying Rad by Stephen Kotler. If you want to find out more about Stephen, you can find him at his website, which is stephencotler.com. You can also find him on Instagram at stephen, and that's Stephen with a V. Stephen Kotler, thanks so much for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. FOMO.